0: This is the Policy Options podcast. I'm Julie Bijel, and I'll be taking over for Maddie Haslam as your host. On Monday, January 7th, the Wet'suwet'en First Nation made headlines across the country when the RCMP arrested 14 people on its territorial lands. They were part of one of two checkpoints that, along with a nearly decade-old camp, controlled entry to the territory and prohibited natural resource development, most recently Trans Canada's Coastal GasLink pipeline. So, why did they resort to such measures? TransCanada asserts they've gained the consent of every First Nation along the pipeline route. But out on Wet'suwet'en territory, the nation's hereditary chiefs tell another story. They say the responsibility for matters of land and title rests with them, and they were never consulted. To put this issue into legal and historical perspective, I'm joined by lawyer and historian Dr. Bruce McIver. He's principal of First Peoples Law, a firm dedicated to defending and advancing Aboriginal title, Aboriginal rights, and treaty rights. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia's Allard School of Law. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the Policy Options Podcast. Do you mind introducing yourself and telling me a bit about your role at First Peoples Law?
1: Sure. Thanks for the chance to talk to you today. I'm Bruce McIver, and I'm principal of First Peoples Law. First Peoples Law is a law firm. We work for indigenous people across the country. We do mostly aboriginal title and treaty rights work, a lot of duty to consult work. And at its basis, what we're trying to do is advance Indigenous people's interests around their rights, protect their rights, and work with them to ensure that their rights are recognized.
0: So, we've been hearing a lot about the Coastal GasLink Pipeline and their injunction against the two checkpoints out on Wet'suwet'en land. I know that you commented on the situation, even though you can't speak for the chiefs out there. Can you give a brief overview of what's happening?
1: Sure. What's happening now, and we've seen in the news that there was an environmental assessment issued by the provincial government several years ago that allows and authorized the pipeline to go through Wet'suwet'en territory. For a long time, though, of course, there have been hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en that have taken very firm stance and said, no, we're not going to allow this to happen. And they've had the checkpoint out there for several years. So this isn't something that's just popped up recently. The provincial government, the federal government, the pipeline company, the RCMP, they've been aware of what the position has been for a long, long time. Recently, the pipeline company filed a lawsuit against the people that are at the checkpoint, and then they brought an injunction to have them removed from the checkpoint. Once the court authorized the injunction, then it was up to the RCMP to decide when and how they would enforce it. That's when it came to a point last week where the RCMP went to remove the people at the checkpoint.
0: So, the government in Canada say that they've obtained the consent of every First Nation along the pipeline route, including the Wet'suwet'en, but the hereditary chiefs are not consenting, as we're seeing in the media right now. Can you explain that distinction a bit?
1: Sure, and this is a really important one, not just for the Wet'suwet'en, but for indigenous relations across the country. There's an important difference between the governance system under the Indian Act and the elected chief and councils and the traditional governance system that each Indigenous nation in Canada has. They aren't the same, but each Indigenous nation has their own governance system. In this particular case, the hereditary chief system for the Wet'suwet'en is very well known. They were involved in the Delgamook decision from the Supreme Court in 1997. They were the plaintiffs along with the Gitxsan chiefs. It didn't involve the Indian Act chief council. So here we have a difference between the position of the Indian Act chief councils and the hereditary governance system. Sometimes in Canada, the Indigenous peoples they align quite closely with, and they recognize the Indian Act Chief and Council as being authorized to speak for them. Sometimes, as in this situation, they don't. There's a disconnect between the Indian Act Chief and Council and the hereditary governance system.
0: How often would you say that happens? And is it a geographical thing? Is that more common out in BC?
1: Not sure if it's more common in BC. It does happen fairly often. It really depends on the particular Indigenous people. This one here is one that no one should have been surprised about. If there's any Indigenous peoples in Canada that we're all well aware, they have their own traditional governance system. It's the Gitsan and it's the Wet'suwet'en because, as I say, they were the plaintiffs in the Delgamuukw case which, as far as I know, is still the longest trial in the history of the Commonwealth. They spent a year of court days explaining their laws, explaining their traditions. So it's been well recorded. It's been considered by courts in B.C., by the Supreme Court of Canada. The second important point on this is subsequent to the Delgamook decision. We had the 2014 Chilcotin decision about Aboriginal title. And this question of who gets to speak for Indigenous people was a central one at the lower levels of court in Chilkoon. It was considered a trial. It was considered, again, at the B.C. Court of Appeal. And the question of what role does an Indian Act chief and counsel have to play was central. And there the court said that the fundamental principle is that it's up to the Indigenous people. The question of who gets to represent them can't be imposed from the outside and can't be assumed. You have to look at the particular Indigenous peoples involved, look at what their governance system is, and listen to them as far as to who represents them. And so I think it's quite clear for the Wet'suwet'en that it's the hereditary chiefs that represent them on the question of Aboriginal title. There's no doubt that there's a role for Indian Act chief councils and we've heard a lot about, well, what about them? They said that it's okay, they were democratically elected. On that point, there's two things to keep in mind. First of all, they operate under a mandate under the Indian Act. Their jurisdiction at law is restricted to their authority under the Indian Act, not outside of that. That doesn't include Aboriginal title and rights throughout the wider territory. One way to analogize this is to think of any major city. You wouldn't have a mayor speaking for an entire province. And yes, while they're elected on a democratic system, the people that get to vote for them are the ones who the government say are Indians under the act. And so that doesn't include all the indigenous people who are part of the larger nation and have a right to enjoy and rely on their aboriginal title and rights.
0: I'd like to come back to that in a second. But first, you mentioned the Dalgamuk and the Chikoten cases. For people of my generation who were quite young when that case was going on, what exactly was happening and why were the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en taking the crown to court?
1: Sure. This dates back to at least as far back as the 1973 Calder decision from the Supreme Court. So there was an outstanding question about Aboriginal title. As a lot of people in Canada are aware, there were treaties signed for different reasons across the country. In some parts of the country, though, there were no treaties. And without the treaty, what happens to that underlying potential Indigenous interest in the land that is now called, quote, crown land? So in 1973, in the Calder decision, the first modern-day decision on Aboriginal title from the Supreme Court, the court had to investigate whether or not Aboriginal title still existed. The result of that decision was that, well, it seemed like it hadn't been extinguished. If it had been, this is what the test would be. So we got the explanation from the Calder decision that Aboriginal title was based on the fact that Indigenous people were here on the land, settled with their own laws, occupying their lands for thousands of years, and that created a pre-existing right in the land before Europeans showed up. So we got that, but we didn't really know too much more about Aboriginal title. Maybe it had been extinguished. If it had not, how would you prove it? So those were the main issues when it came back up to the Supreme Court in the Delgamook decision. And there, the Supreme Court said two really important things. One that, no, it didn't look like it had been extinguished for both the Gitsan and the Wet'suwet'en, because you have to have clear and plain intent to extinguish, and then it has to be done by the proper level of government. So no, Aboriginal title existed. That was a huge win not any specific place but the idea that aboriginal title could be out there and the court also had to decide what is it and the court said it's an interest in the land it's something akin to it's not exactly the same but it's something akin to when people own land in feed simple they have private property it's something like that it's not exactly the same But it's an interest in that land itself, because there was an argument that it was only an interest to do things on the land, to go hunt and fish and trap and do that bundle of rights. But the court said, no, Aboriginal title means that you, to a large extent, own the land. You get to decide about how the land should be used, how maybe it shouldn't be used, as in this case. And if the land is going to be used in some way, you get the benefit. And then the last thing was the court said if Indigenous people are going to go out and try to prove their Aboriginal title, here's what the test would be. And just to finish off on that, one of the really interesting points in this situation that the court made back in 1997 was that one of the requirements to prove that you have Aboriginal title is to show exclusive occupation of the land, which means that you can stop other people from using your lands. And that one of the benefits from being able to prove title is that you can exclusively occupy the land and that you can stop other people from coming in and exploiting your land. So that's why it was particularly ironic and painfully so to see the RCMP going over the checkpoint that the hereditary chiefs had signed up because there's a good argument that they were exercising their Aboriginal title in putting up that checkpoint.
0: So, you have the Delgamute case where the plaintiffs are the hereditary chiefs of the Gitsan and the Wet'suwet'en. And then, fast forward 20 years, and we have the result over the coastal gas link pipeline. And as you said, the RCMP coming in, breaking up the blockades along the route. Why would the provincial government think that it didn't have to gain the consent of the hereditary chiefs? Why would they just rely on the banned council? And that leads me to a broader question over what are the legal precedents over the duty of the Crown to consult versus to gain consent?
1: Maybe just before we jump to the incident last week there, I think it's important to put a marker in place in 2014 with the Chilcotin decision from the Supreme Court, because that built on the Delgamook decision. And that was the first time where the court said, okay, we're going to apply this test from Delgamuuk," And they actually made a declaration of Aboriginal title. So they attached a map and they said, here in Chilcotin territory in BC lies Aboriginal title land. It's a certainty. It exists. You can go out there and stand on it now. It's a reality. And one of the important things that the court referred to in that decision was that What should you do when there's a contest about whether Aboriginal title exists or not? And I think the court gave a pretty strong indication to government, you should presume that Aboriginal title's there. Do these Indigenous people need to fight all the way through court for 10 or 20 years? Shouldn't we proceed on the basis? As long as they meet some minimal requirements, Aboriginal title exists. Let's go ahead on that basis. And that's the way that things should be moving in B.C. and across the country, the assumption of Aboriginal title. And if there are any groups that this specifically should apply for, it's the Gitsan and the Wet'suwet'en, because as I say, they went through a long trial. It's reasonable now for companies and for the government to take the position, we're not going to argue about this anymore. We know they have Aboriginal title. Let's work towards realizing that and implementing it. And if you take that position, then you do need to go and get consent. That's what the expectation is. You can try to override Aboriginal title, and there is a test that the Supreme Court of Canada has developed to infringe Aboriginal title. But from my viewpoint, that's a very hard test to meet, and I think it should be the last resort to do that. Instead, what you should be doing is going out there and, okay, we're going to start from the presumption. You have Aboriginal title. Aboriginal title means you get to decide what happens on your land. You get to benefit from your land. Now, who do we talk to? Who do we talk to to get consent? I think the law is pretty clear on that. You need to listen to the particular Indigenous people. So who do they say you should talk to? What is the traditional governance system? Can you just go talk to the chief and counsel? Some situations that might be a proxy, that might be fine. In this one, as I said, it's pretty clear that you can't just go talk to the chief and counsel. From the people I've been in touch with that were involved in the negotiations, I've been told that everyone made it clear. You can't simply rely on chief and counsel. And that yet, for whatever their reasons, the provincial government and the company thought, well, we're going to charge ahead and just rely on the chief council. Why they did that, I can't say, but I think it was quite clear at law if we're talking about a country based on the rule of law, they should have been doing something else.
0: So that brings me to a question about the province. So the pipeline right now is under provincial jurisdiction because it starts and ends in BC, and the province has been acting as the crown in terms of interacting with Indigenous groups and consulting with Indigenous groups. If this does go through and there is a challenge, a legal challenge, would the province be able to seek to infringe upon the title?
1: Right. So there's two points there, I think. You're right. Currently, the decision on whether the pipeline can proceed or not and the required authorizations have been provincial now there is an outstanding question as to whether or not it does fall within federal jurisdiction and so there is a current application before the national energy board to consider whether they have jurisdiction over the pipeline and then if they decide they do then there will be a federal review, but that's for down the road. As far as here, your second question was, again, sorry, remind me?
0: Whether it's a federal issue or a provincial issue, let's say it is a provincial issue, the province can apply it to, in French, infringe, right? yeah, the territory yeah, yeah. Okay. or the so treaty rights. In the
1: 2014 Chocotan decision, there were two central issues there. The first one was, could you have territorial claims for aboriginal title? Or were Aboriginal title lands just kind of dots on a map? And so the Supreme Court of Canada there said, no, you can have these large territorial claims for title. That was, of course, a huge and significant win, both for the Chilcotin and for Indigenous people across the country. The second main issue in that decision was this one about the role of the provincial government. And up until that time, it had been pretty clear on the law In fact, there was a recent case from the Supreme Court on this that there was no space for a provincial government to try to infringe either Aboriginal title or treaty rights. The Supreme Court of Canada changed the law on that in 2014 with the Chokotan decision, and they basically opened up the door for provincial governments to at least try to justify an infringement of Aboriginal title. That was a huge change. So in this case, if there is a challenge of the environmental assessment certificate for the pipeline and the provincial government was going to defend it in court, possibly one of the things that they would be required to do would be to show that it's an infringement. That's if the Wet'suwet'en can establish that they do have title. Then the requirement would be, well, have you justified your infringements? If it goes forward as simply based on the possibility of title, what's called pre-proof, then you're into a lower requirement on the provincial government. And that's where we're into what we often hear about with the duty to consult and accommodate. I would think there one of the central questions would be, who did you consult with? Did you consult with the right party?
0: So let's say there is a legal challenge the Wet'suwet'en would have a strong case because of the Dalgamuk decision in terms of having claim to title. So then, if the province was to seek an infringement for the pipeline, what would be the criteria that they would have to fill?
1: Well, the infringement analysis is based on there being a finding that there is title first of all. So the Delgamuuk decision didn't find there was title, but there was a strong indication that there is. So, in order to get to the infringement analysis, you still need a finding that there is title. So that would be the first hurdle that the it would need to overcome. If you did, there's a whole analysis set down by the court that involves showing that there is a valid legislative objective, so-called minimal impairment, consultation, and so forth. I think in this particular situation one possibility that the hermitary chiefs might be considering, and I don't have any information about this, but they might consider bringing a case in trespass against the pipeline company. There have been some really interesting and important recent developments in the law over the last few years. One case from BC, one case from Quebec, where Indigenous people have gone to court. And they sued companies on the basis of, you're trespassing on our Aboriginal title lands. And then the question that was before the court in each of those cases, could they do this when they didn't have a declaration of Aboriginal title first? Was that a requirement? And importantly, in those cases, the court said, no. You don't need a declaration of Aboriginal title to sue someone else for trespassing on your Aboriginal title. If the case went to court, of course, part of the trial would be to show that you do have title. But that doesn't stop you from suing a private company for trespass. And the whole trespass point goes back to this issue of the checkpoint. Trespass is based on the understanding that when you own the land, When it's your land, you can exclude other people from being on your land and using it.
0: So on that note, we've been covering the legal precedents in Canada over these issues, but I'm wondering if the framework for addressing Aboriginal title cases could change with the implementation of UNDRIP. There's been a lot of talk lately about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples which mandates free, prior, and informed consent from Indigenous groups before any projects that involve their territorial lands. Canada endorsed it in 2016 under Justin Trudeau, and the legislature recently passed Bill C-262, which calls on the government to implement it. How do people in the legal community think that this will affect the duty to consult?
1: I can speak for myself and the conversations that I've had with some of my colleagues about it. I think one of the things that we're moving towards pretty clearly in Canada is that we're moving beyond the duty to consult and we're moving towards a consent-based model. And so the adoption of UNDRIP, the 10 principles that the federal government put out last summer, they're all based on the assumption that you will move towards consent And it's important in that context to keep in mind the difference between consent and veto. You hear a lot from industry, you hear a lot from government folks. I speak about this across the country. One of the things that I tell people is that I use the word veto as a barometer of how sophisticated any particular provincial government is. The more they say veto, the more I think they're probably not very sophisticated in dealing with Indigenous peoples. Veto, it's important to keep in mind, is all based on the responsibility, the obligation that Indigenous people have to take part in consultation. So the court has been clear there's an obligation not to frustrate consultation. If there's an honest process there, you should stand up and take part, except for very specific circumstances. But what the court has said is you can't not take part. And then at the end, unjustifiably jump up and say, veto, play a trump card. The court said there needs to be an ongoing conversation. But what's happened is, unfortunately, that's become an argument for a lot of proponents and I've seen government to take the position that, well, you don't have a veto. So at the end of the day, we're going to get to do what we plan to do from the outset. So when they say veto, that's what I think they mean a lot of times. And that kind of thinking is completely contrary to the fundamental principles of the duty to consult. When you're doing consultation, it's important that the government start from the position that the project may never proceed. And if you don't, then consultation that follows is most likely largely meaningless. Now veto is different from consent. Consent is something you go out and you seek. And that's the conversation that Indigenous people expect. You have to be open to the possibility that the answer will be no, you can't get our consent.
0: Mm-hmm. And similarly to the political framing of the issue to gain consent as a question of veto, we've also had some politicians, including the B.C. Premier John Horgan, argue that the conflict in B.C. right now is an issue but the right to protest or the right to assembly. So how does this square with the legal frameworks that we have in Canada for collective Indigenous rights?
1: I think this goes to the central tension in Canada between individual rights and collective rights. And it's something that Indigenous people hear a lot across the country. It's something that I, myself, and my colleagues hear. It's this argument about equality, that everyone should be the same. It's individual rights. It's a liberal democracy. And what they're ignoring on that is one of the fundamental principles in the Constitution, is that it's not just individual rights. These are collective rights. Aboriginal title is not a charter right. It's not under the Charter. Section 35 of the Constitution is separate from the Charter, and it's based on the principle that there are collective rights. And so when the hereditary chiefs and their supporters are out there, they're not doing it simply as a matter of protest. They aren't protesters. They are defenders. They are defending the collective rights of the nation and of their houses. And that's what they're standing on. And Canada, if Canada is a rule of law country, we need to recognize that, that the collective rights are part of our constitution. There needs to be space for the exercise of those rights. And really importantly, people have to be able to defend them. Without being labeled protesters, criminals, terrorists, they aren't that. They're Indigenous people defending their collective rights.
0: Bruce, thanks so much for coming in and giving us the legal context behind what's happening out in BC with the RCMP, the Coastal GasLink Pipeline, and the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en.
1: Thanks. I really appreciate the chance.
0: That was Dr. Bruce McIver, a historian and lawyer who's principal at First Peoples Law. To learn more about the legal precedents he was speaking about, you can read his collection of essays online entitled First Peoples Law, Essays in Canadian Law and Decolonization, available at firstpeopleslaw.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the magazine, send us an email at policyoptions@irpp.org at or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn under the handle at IRPP. I'm Julie Bijal. Thanks so much for tuning into the Policy Options Podcast.